Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, September 28th. We begin with a look at the state of COVID-19 as we move into the fall. Could we see an uptick in cases? And what can we expect from flu season this year in Alberta? We discuss with Dr. Craig Jenny, infectious disease specialist from the University of Calgary. Over 200,000 concussions occur annually in Canada, the most common head injury. Do you know how to accurately identify a concussion and how it should be treated? We get the answers from Dr. Martin Morazic, professor of psychology from the University of Alberta. Next, a look back at the summer of 2022, specifically how the season was for Alberta's tourism and hospitality industry. Our Dave McIver spoke with some business insiders to find out if the summer of 22 can be described as a success to one of the hardest hit sectors of the pandemic. And finally, the new Netflix series Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story, has been the number one spot on the streaming service since its release last week. Why are we drawn to dark movies and TV shows and what's behind our morbid curiosity? We talk about it with author and research scientist Colton Scrivener of the Recreational Fear Lab at the University of Denmark. Fall definitely means cooler weather, spending more time inside. So will the flu return with a vengeance this year? And will we see a spike in COVID cases? Joining us to talk about it and to answer any questions you might have is the man who held our hand through the pandemic, Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. Good morning to you, Dr. Janney. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Um, we know that when it's flu season, we sort of look to Australia to get an idea of what's coming our way. How does it look in terms of what kind of flu season we might be experiencing in Canada this year? So uh, Australia came back to a fairly regular flu season, maybe a little worse than average. I think if we look at the total number of cases in Australia, it was up a fair bit. But keep in mind, they were testing a lot more this year, so they found more cases. Hospitalizations were up a little bit. So, you know, it looks like we're we're back to a a full blown normal flu season maybe edging slightly worse than average so you know something we need to be prepared for unfortunately the the last two years we've really had it easy public health measures did a good job of keeping more than the coronavirus at bay and with those gone now we can expect flu to circulate I know it's the last thing people want to hear, Dr. Jenny, but we did see the experience, the effectiveness of masks. I think that can't be debated. Do you think that some people might be inclined to, to use masks during a busy flu season as we move past the pandemic itself? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think, you know, as you pointed out, we, we can argue about how protective, what the numbers are, but at the end of the day, it stopped a lot of infections. And, and when you have to go into a crowded area, when you're in a, a place where you know people will likely have the flu, you know, large gatherings, poor air circulation, you know, the masks will continue to work and, and they remain a great tool for those that, that simply need that extra layer of protection, whether they're immunocompromised or, or perhaps live with somebody who's at risk, it's a great option that can be added on to, to any plan moving into the fall. Dr. Janney, do I need to be concerned about getting another shot? Let's face it, we've had our, yeah. our three shots. We are maybe getting the new booster. Maybe you've had four already waiting for the booster, and then we want to get a flu shot. Any yeah. danger about putting all this stuff in our body? So the answer is no. You know, we, we have done this for the previous flu season. Uh, the, the, the public health agency ha- has okayed, and it's safe to get both shots. In fact, they encourage you, if you're going to go in for one, to talk to your doctor about is it time for your COVID booster. Uh, so we can get both at the same time, and we do that quite routinely. So, you know, it, there's no risk of, of, of too many, at least in this case, of these vaccines. Their formulations get along well with each other. So, you know, if you are going to go in and 
it is time for that that booster shot for COVID, whether it's your third or fourth, uh, absolutely talk to your healthcare provider about getting them both done on the same day and, and then not having to worry about it. Kind of a similar question, Dr. Janney, when you say getting them both done on the same day, how close are we to, to getting that perhaps annual hybrid that would have a COVID and a flu protection in it? Yeah, I'm not sure if we will see them in the exact same syringe. We may, but but keep in mind that these two vaccines right now, flu and, and what we are using in Canada for most of our COVID shots, are still different technology. They de- they need different storage. They're made in different ways, so, so they're actually structured quite differently. So I'm not sure if you'll see them mixed in the same syringe, but it might be very much that you go in and, and both shots are waiting for you next fall. And if that's what your option is, then, then yeah, we can get them done at the same time and, and, uh, and, and get protection against these two, you know, both important but very different viruses. Dr. Janney, we talked about the flu. What about COVID? Are we expecting to see a bit of a spike this fall as we get into the colder weather, kids are back in school, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I think you've, you've captured all the, the the metrics there. So, yeah, I think we can expect a, a bit of a, a spike. You know, colder weather, indoor activity, kids are, are, are back in school, large gatherings. If we look across the country, other jurisdictions have already started to see that uptick. We've seen, tragically, a, 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 an increase in hospitalizations in some other provinces. And even looking here in Alberta, we were checking just yesterday, a number of the, the, the towns and communities, when we check the wastewater levels, are starting to see over the last week and a half a bit of an uptick so we do know that there are more cases and it's not surprising it happens with most respiratory viruses in the fall and COVID unfortunately is no exception to the rule. And I know that you know the the biggest news headlines have been from those restrictions that will be lifted as Mm -hmm. of Friday but you know I know that we we talked about it in the past but if you can give us a refresher as to how far apart do we have to wait for those booster shots because I know people out there some still need that booster what's the timeline again? Yeah, so, you know, we're looking still somewhere ideally around four weeks, but if we can stretch that out a little bit. Oh, oh sorry, for the boosters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, so I was thinking between your first and second. Uh, no, the, the boosters, we are recommending five to six months since your last vaccine. Um, the one uh, caveat to that would be if you came down with COVID, we are also requesting a, a three months after recovery from that COVID bout. So, you know, if you were just coming up to your five-month mark for ready for your booster and you came down with COVID, that clock would reset for another three months before you need to consider getting that booster. Dr. Jenny, text in from Jen who asks, is the new COVID shot Moderna only? Is there a Pfizer version? So right now not submitted to Health Canada for approval. So Pfizer is working on its own versions of it. But, you know, we have used in Canada Pfizer and Moderna uh, as mixed dosing throughout the pandemic. And we know it works very well. And in fact, with many of the patients who had received uh, a Pfizer first shot and a Moderna second or or vice versa or, you know, mixed on the boosters, it yielded actually better immunity than matching the vaccine all the way through. So if, if somebody has had nothing but Pfizer so far and they're due for a booster, you know, there's no reason not to consider the Moderna, but again, have that conversation with your health care provider. Dr. Jenny, as mentioned, as of Friday at midnight, mm-hmm. you, will no, not lo- you will no longer be required to wear a mask on an airplane. Your personal thoughts, if you were flying to Vegas of this weekend and it was not mandated, would you wear a mask on a plane? 
Yeah, so on a plane, yeah, I'll, I'll still be wearing a mask, at least for the, the foreseeable future, probably into the new year at least. Um, un- unfortunately, we just know that viruses circulate better in enclosed spaces, and although there's filtration on the plane, uh, it, it, it likely doesn't keep up with if there's one or two people in your seating area that, that happen to have the virus. And, you know, if I'm going away, especially if I'm going away for a week or so, I, the last thing I want to do is come down with, with something on my way to a holiday. So, and vice versa, coming back, you, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that mask on. It's minor inconvenience, uh, and it's something we've been doing now for, for two, two and a half years. So pretty used to it, and, uh, and it, it works. So at least for the foreseeable future, I'll, I'll continue to wear a mask on a plane. Final quick question from Neil, who asks if we got the third shot when it first came out. So it's been well over six months mm-hmm. since the last shot, maybe even a year. Can we just go ahead and get the booster, or do we have to get a full vaccine again? No, great question. No, it is just a booster. So, so if if you've had the full vaccine at some point, we're only looking at those single shot boosters to to bring immunity back up. It's not that your immune system has shut off or or it's gone, but we're going to use that booster to bring it back up to maximum level and ensure that that we can get the best protection possible. So, single shot, either Moderna, Pfizer, doesn't matter, or the protein vaccines. Talk to your healthcare provider what's best for your personal situation. But it's the one booster. And you're good to go. Great to catch up with you again. Uh, thanks for your insight. Thanks for your time, Dr. Janney. You guys are welcome. Take care. Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. Concussions, the most common type of head injury. And in Canada, more than 200,000 concussions occur every year. Joining us to talk about it on Concussion Awareness Day is Dr. Martin Mrazek, Professor Chair of Undergraduate Studies in the Department of Educational Psychology at the University of Alberta. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. 200,000 concussions in Canada annually. That's got to be a low number, though. I would suspect there are a whole lot more that don't go diagnosed or reported for that matter. Do you think? Yeah, no. I mean, those numbers are likely an underreport. We we don't know. Uh, a lot of those numbers come from emergency departments. Um, but uh, we do know that uh, young people especially uh, are a little vulnerable because of the activities that they're engaged in. And some of those uh, are not always uh, go to the hospital. So those numbers are probably a little bit low. Mm-hmm. It might be a little bit low. People might not, you know, even know they had a concussion. What are the symptoms, Dr. Morazic, we need to look for uh, after we've, you know, maybe taken, taken a knock to the head? Yeah, I think the important, uh, uh, you know, points are is that uh, concussion can take place uh, either with a direct but also an indirect blow to the head. So in the case of a significant whiplash, and we tend to see um, almost immediate neurological symptoms like headaches are common, dizziness. Um, but we have learned a lot about the brain and that sometimes there is a little bit of a delayed onset. And so sometimes, especially in the sporting activities, uh, that uh, the adrenaline may be running high and we may not see evidence of those symptoms for about 24 hours. But the common symptoms are definitely headaches, dizziness, uh, some cognitive issues, so just not feeling uh, like your concentration and memory are working very well. And there's uh, often a mood component where you're just a little bit irritable uh, and sometimes the light and sensitivity seem to really bother you. But it's a, it's a shift in how the person was functioning um, previously. I, I know sport organizations are fo- far more cognizant of it and really pay attention to it, especially with the younger set. What about for those of us, you know, 
I don't know, even older than 50, who probably hit our heads more than once, probably had a concussion, and wasn't really something that we dealt with back in those days. Is there any help for that? Is there anything we can do to kind of offset what maybe happened to us when we were kids? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, in terms of the, the outcome for, for mild traumatic brain injury, where there's no uh, evidence of of changes to the brain on imaging studies, we tend to see that the recovery for that is, is fairly good, usually taking place within weeks or months. Uh, I think some of the, the additional symptoms is, is we, we're seeing a, a fairly high number of, of people that have, uh, you know, the psychological fallout after that. So they're a little more anxious, they're a little bit more, uh, their mood is low. Uh, and so we want to make sure that we're paying attention to the mental health aspects because sometimes those things can kind of take over when a person's not been feeling well and they're not sure if they're back to uh, normal functioning. Uh, that, that certainly can be an anxiety-provoking situation. So we want to make sure that we're paying to the mental health piece uh, and then we certainly do have some really uh, good specialties, uh, physios and athletic therapists that, uh, you know, really get people more uh, active. And sometimes uh, if people are having the dizziness problems, we have to do a few tests just to make sure that uh, their neck movements and their eye movements are coordinated. Uh, um, we call that the ocular, vestibular ocular reflex. So there's a lot of different things that uh, I think specializations can really be helpful if a person is having persisting symptoms. Whereas I'm sure we just got a couple seconds left here, Dr. Mrazik. I'm sure that, you know, if it's something severe, you'd go to the hospital. But uh, how do I discern whether or not I've, I've taken a bump to the head, whether it's hospital worthy or just be visiting my family physician? Yeah, no, important question. And typically we look for deterioration in neurological functioning. And so that's where a headache is getting worse. A person may start to vomit. Um, or they, they start to become disoriented. Those are what we call the red flags, and those are things that we definitely want people to go to the hospital immediately um, if you don't have those signs. And again, it's a good idea to see your family doctor very soon. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate it. It's something we need to keep talking about for sure. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Dr. Martin Mrazek is a Professor Chair of Undergraduate Studies in the Department of Educational Psychology at the U of A. Did beautiful weather and fewer restrictions attract more people to the city of Calgary this summer? And did it impact one of the hardest hit industries over the past two years during the pandemic? On-air contributor Dave McIver set out to find some answers for us. After two summers of restrictions and the threat of COVID-19, it felt like we returned to a typically normal summer when it comes to tourism in Calgary. But did the numbers actually show that people traveled in and around the city? Stacey Hatcher is the Vice President of Operations and Governance for Tourism Calgary, and I caught up with her to get the breakdown on how tourism went in the city. Well, what I can tell you is that most of our partners told us that this really was uh, truly one of their best summers. Uh, and and the, the, important, the important thing is the numbers are showing it as well. And we're seeing actually uh, numbers that are on par with po- pre-pandemic, so 2019. And we're, uh, we're on track to have a really great fall here in Calgary as well. That's awesome. Do you feel like people who, who don't live here were really excited to get back to the city, um, obviously in a summer that felt a lot different than the past two? Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, it goes without saying as part of the job, I'm out, I'm out in the city and I, I'm checking out some of the events and, and the fun things to do if you're a visitor to the city. And there's no question Stampede drove a lot of traffic this summer. One of the, the things that we noticed with Stampede was uh, pretty much from start to finish, 
people people were in the city from the first weekend to the last weekend. That showed up in a lot of our hotel occupancy rates uh, as well. Some of the numbers uh, and occupancy rates not seen since 2013. So the numbers are telling a really great story for our sector and for the city. Uh, for the summer. Outside of Stampede, we know Stampede draws every year, and I think we, we saw that it, it, draw, it drew even better this year. What were some of the other events that uh, drew people into the city? Well, the Canadian Country Music Awards just wrapped up, and so that that's something that typically draws a, a lot of people uh, to, to Calgary, and it's not the first time Calgary's held the awards. We're, uh, I'd like to think that we're one of the favorite cities, which is why uh, the Canadian Country Music Awards keep coming back. And uh, we've got a whole interesting lineup coming up for the fall, too. And I know a lot of uh, our, our folks here who live in Calgary, but also folks from away, like to come for things like Beakerhead. Breakout West is another music festival that's going to be happening here soon. I think in the past, what, what we've noticed is there tends to be peaks and valleys in, in the visitor uh, sector uh, cadence if you will and i think what we're noticing now especially as we're coming out of the pandemic and and people want to see each other again and they want to travel and they want to do things uh we're, we're seeing less of the peaks and valleys we're seeing actually very steady stream of work and what that means for our members who are part of tourism calgary that's attractions it's restaurants it's breweries it's distilleries it's venues that that host different types of events whether it's sporting or or other and so we're seeing really very little lag time in between these events which is great for the sector and certainly it's going to be great for our recovery one of the industries that has been hit hardest over the last two years is the hospitality and service industry. Ernie Sue with the Alberta Hospitality Associations says they saw the benefits and it was a massive improvement over the last two years. Yeah, it was great. It was great in our industry. It was great to see the spike. I mean, the, the long stretch of hot weather uh, helped out everybody, but and it was great to see um, lots of tourists back in uh, back in town. You know, it, it, it's obviously infinitely better than the last two years anything could be better than the last two years but um, especially Stampede it was probably you know as a born and raised Calgarian it was probably the best Stampede I've seen in in 12 years Uh, you got to see so many live music events happening in in Calgary as soon as um, the restrictions lifted and uh, it was great to see the arts getting back on track as well. One of the things Tourism Calgary looks at is air travel, specifically who and where people are coming from. Well, uh, domestic air travelers, were uh, that, uh, that number was up over 2019 by about 24%. And then our international air travelers coming into Calgary is on the rise but it's still lagging below our 2019 numbers. I mean, it is part of what what we're looking is the return of the business traveler also. And uh, and that will be helped, I think, quite a bit with the federal government's recent announcement about uh, lifting some of the, their protocols at the border. I think sometimes people like to know who are the international visitors uh, that, that we find come to Calgary most often. And, and what I can say based on uh, some of the, the information and data we've received about the summer, our primary international visitors were coming from the U.K., and from Germany and the United States. Those were the first international travel markets to come back to Calgary and and obviously took advantage of all of the wonderful things that we had to offer this summer. And then we'll see what the fall holds and whether whether those are the international visitors that keep coming or whether we'll begin to add some new ones. 
especially once those restrictions lift at the border. After a two-year roller coaster ride for business and tourism in the city, it appears things are returning to pre-pandemic levels. And hopefully, with the restrictions on international travel being lifted, we can avoid the peaks and valleys Stacy mentioned. For 770 CHQR, I'm Dave McIver. Well, let's hope, Dave, that what we, we do take from the pandemic is people were kind of forced to, to travel within our backyard. And they may have discovered that they don't have to go abroad, mm-hmm. not just the folks coming to visit, but, you know, spending more money consistently here. It's a good point, right? Like, obviously, Stampede, we know, is the driver of, of a lot of things in the summer. Sure. But the fact that we were able to get the Canadian Country Music Awards and the fact we had fewer restrictions and the fact we could, you know, you look at the, the restaurant and, and the bar industry and, and the fact we were able to go inside them and not just sit on patios with bigger groups, I think all contributed. But um, you're right, Andy. I think one of the you know positive things that came out of the pandemic is when people maybe who didn't regularly come here started coming here and then they go, oh, wow, I really like Calgary. Maybe I'll pop back. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as, uh, as Stacey mentioned, with, with the uh, restrictions lifting on, on international travel, if they can get that number things dramatically and then get that number back to pre-pandemic levels um which i do believe they will uh, eventually i'm looking looking like a place to be again well and we albertans right i mean as andy mentioned we had to stay kind of close to home so we traveled we camped whereas we might normally just out of habit go to bc for example absolutely we stayed and found some sweet spots here in our own province we did you know people got into hiking there were just so many things that we changed about what we did and where we went that hopefully if even an iota of those things stick we'll be way better off yeah it's a good point sue like i think you got into hiking right Mm -hmm. like uh, we you know, we we traveled within the province as well, and Andy, I know you and the family go to Jasper, and, and maybe you did that a couple more times than yeah. you normally would because well, that's all you could do. So, uh, with things opening up, I think it was a good opportunity for us to to showcase who we are for for Canadians and. Hopefully with that international travel coming back, we'll be uh, all set to be another big destination again. And different industries really picking up here, new industries, new companies moving to Alberta, to the Calgary area. I think we're set. Things are looking good. Does yeah. Book that trip and uh, consider local. Come on, locals. Why are we drawn to terrible stories? What's behind our fascination with horror and the macabre? Joining us to talk about it and help understand our morbid curiosity is Colton Scrivener, author and research scientist at the Recreational Fear Lab at Aarhus University in Denmark and a UX researcher at Meta in Menlo Park, California. Good morning to you, Colton. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Okay, first of all, Recreational Fear Lab. This feels like an oxymoron to me. What's happening there? <laughs> well, it does It does sound a bit of an oxymoron. Um, I think that's one thing that makes it interesting to study is, you know, why do people seek out these instances of fear in order to uh, have fun? And I think, you know, especially over the coming month or so, especially in the U.S., we'll see a lot of that with uh, Halloween coming. Uh, but Recreational Fear does just refer to the fact that uh, some people do seem to seek out instances of uh, of fear in order to have a good time. But when we talk about fear, Colton, I look back to, to my childhood and it was, you know, for example, like Friday the 13th, maybe Nightmare on Elm Street, completely fictional. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we've got this new crop, true crime documentaries, serial killer mm-hmm. movies. Why are they so popular? Because it's, it's very close to home. This, this, these are real life events. Why Why are we drawn to them? Yeah, I think it's honestly for a very similar kind of reason, which is, uh, you know, humans are sort of drawn to information about threats. And I think, like you said, with true crime, 
uh, serial killers can be very feel very close to home, right? We we know that it's not fictional. We know that, or even if it is fictional, it's something that could happen, right? It's something that could happen to us or someone we know. Uh, and if you ask people, you know, psychological thrillers or or true crime tend to be rated as you know more uh, more frightening than other types of of horror movies. And so I think the the psychology behind it is actually very very similar. You know, there's sometimes a lot of uh, arguments about whether or not uh, psychological thrillers or true crime should fit into the horror genre. And, you know, the, the truth is that, like, the reason that we're interested in it is really very much the same reason. Do you think, Colton, you know, is it just the human need for answers or explanations as to why we want to watch something like Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story? I mean, it's number one on Netflix, so clearly people are into it. Is it do you think it's that? I think that's definitely a big role of it. I think, you know, when we hear about something terrible and atrocious that another person does, uh, we not we want to understand, like you mentioned, uh, you know, how could they do this or why would they do this? But the reason that we, you know, we're motivated to learn that, the reason that we're curious about that is that most people, you know, might not have suspected that when they knew Jeffrey Dahmer or any other number of serial killers. Many of them sort of uh, are, are camouflaged among society. You know, it's not obvious that they're... Uh, potentially dangerous. And so when we feel morbid curiosity, uh, you know, when we see a true crime docuseries, for example, part of that is to motivate us to uh, learn what to look out for, right? Like, can we can we predict who's going to be potentially dangerous based on how they behave, based on how they speak, based on the way that they dress or the way that they look? Um, so a lot of it is really learning how to pick up cues about people who are dangerous. And this is, of course, you know, a a sort of subconscious feeling, right? We don't we don't often go into the TV show thinking about that, but it is sort of a subconscious motivator for it. Colton, you know, when we talk about fear and it's aliens or a shark, for example, that's one thing. But when we're exposed to kind of the worst side of humanity, you know, when it comes to something mm-hmm. like this Jeffrey Dahmer film, do we have any issues or, or fears that we might become desensitized to death and violence and maybe some of this gruesome content? Is Is that a fear? Yeah, I think that's certainly something people worry about. I mean, if you look back to the, especially the 1980s when like slasher horror movies started getting popular, there were a lot of public fears around, you know, is this desensitizing or, you know, decreasing empathy? And you sort of saw the same thing, um, especially in the U.S. in the 90s and early 2000s with violent video games. So if you play violent video games, is it going to desensitize you to violence, make you more likely to be violent? And you know, there's been a lot of research on that uh, over the past couple of decades, and the, the clear answer seems to be no, that it, it doesn't desensitize you. Uh, I think the I think the the fear that it would, you know, I, it makes sense to, to be afraid of that, but the, the data suggests otherwise. Got an interesting text from Stephen who says, when times are good, documentary films, for example, do really well. When times are not so good, we want more of a distraction, and maybe that's why the horror or the macabre seems to be more popular. Do you think that holds true, Colton? I think that probably holds true for some people. I think that one interesting um, counterpoint to that would be that, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, especially the first year of it, horror movies did exceptionally well. In fact, they did better uh, in 2020 at the box office than any other year prior or as long as it has been collected. And they also had their best year at the box office in 2021. And so at this time in, in the world where for a lot of people, it is really scary, right? There's a lot of uh, scary new stuff happening between um, the virus and lockdowns and just lots of different things. 
uh, people are sort of flocking to to scary movies. Yeah, and in particular, this time of the year, getting yeah. closer to Halloween for sure. Oh, true. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Colton. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. That is Colton Scrivener, author and research scientist at the Recreational Fear Lab at the University of Denmark and a UX researcher at Meta in Menlo Park, California.